scripture reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 4. We'll be reading verses 1 through 22. We are looking at this passage because in our study of the Heidelberg Catechism, we arrive at Lord's Day 11, which is all regarding the name of the Lord Jesus and Him as our Savior. And we find a very precious and well-known verse concerning Christ and His name in chapter 4. And you'll remember that there was that miracle that John and Peter went to the temple to pray and they met that lame man whom the Lord blessed in regaining his, his walking abilities. And they preached a wonderful sermon. Peter preached a wonderful sermon. But at the end of that sermon, um, this is what happens in chapter 4, verse 1. And as they spake unto the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through, through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in hold unto the next day, for it was now eventide. Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed And the number of the men was about 5,000. And it came to pass on the morrow that their rulers and elders and scribes and Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have ye done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to this impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved." Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. And beholding the man which was healed, standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For that indeed a notable miracle hath been done by them is manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But that it spread no further among the people, let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God. 
judge ye. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them because of the people. For all men glorified God for that which was done. For the man was about 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing was shown. Thus far, may God bless the reading and the further preaching of his own word. Again in Acts chapter 4, as we hope to consider, especially verses 12 through, um, verses 10 through 12. And I'll be reading these um, three verses right now, and I'll be reading Lord's Day 11 following. So first Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 10, after Peter was asked by what power they have done what they did, verse 10, he says, Be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him does this man stand here before you whole, entire, healed, This is the stone which was set at naught, referring to Christ, of you builders, which is become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. What had happened was the miracle of this man the very last verse of our of our chapter says he was 40 years old above 40 years old he had been lame by birth peter and john saw him um he was begging and so they said we we have no no silver and gold but what we have we will give you in the name of jesus christ of nazareth in verse 6 they said rise up and walk And he took him by the right hand, we read in verse 7, and lifted that man up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength, and he began to leap, and he began to walk, and he entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. And that man became what you could call the sermon illustration for all the people that were in the temple Wondering how that man, whom they knew, they knew he was a beggar for many years. Um, Little boys and girls who went through that location and saw him there, he became a staple of that position. He was always there begging for many years. That's the way that he could have some money for himself to survive. But now he's walking and he's even leaping and he's praising God. And they know that something has happened that they can't explain. And then Peter preached that sermon. It was a sermon that was very pointed. We, we looked at that sermon a few um, weeks ago. It was a sermon in which Peter was very clear to show that the majority of those people, they were the very ones who had crucified the one who had the power to do that miracle. Peter, to, to that very crowd, made it clear, we're not the ones who have the power. It doesn't reside in us. It is in the, in the Lord Jesus, the one who was crucified, but the one who arose from the dead. He's the one who's doing this work that you have seen. 
And the commotion was so great, and there were so there were thousands of people round about them. And, and as we began reading in verse 1, we, we see what happened. The, these, the priests came, the captain of the temple. Some believe this could have been even a Roman who would stand there as a captain to make sure there was order in the temple. And the Sadducees, they, they came, they, they took their, they, they laid hands on them, verse 3, and put them in hold until the next day, for it was now even time tide. And, and what they were grieved about is that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Remember the Sadducees and many of the priests were of the faction of the Sadducees, and they were the very ones who didn't believe in the resurrection. So they had a double um, qualm with Jesus. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection, but they were not believing Jesus was the Messiah. The Sadducees didn't believe either one of those two things. And, and the whole message about Christ being the Messiah is that, yes, he died, but he arose from the, from the grave. He's alive. And a proof of his life, of his being alive, is this miracle that you just finished seeing. The, the idea that's put before the crowds is, even though it's been these 40-some or, or more days that Jesus has been gone, he's, he's really not dead. He's alive, and this is proof that he continues to work. So that when he's questioned by these very people who on the next day they, they, they arraign um, a tribunal before um, them. In verse 5 it says that it's, it's, a, it's another group of people. It was the rulers and the elders and the scribes. And then there's some who are named. Verse 6, Annas the high priest and Caiaphas. He was a son-in-law of Annas. And, and John who was known to be the son of Annas. And Alexander another person... Josephus calls him someone who was of, of, of a good position in Israel. And as many as were of the kindred of the high priests were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they ask what power, by what name this happened, they say, by the name, by the power of Jesus. You see, what Peter is saying is he's alive. He died, but he arose. And he continues to work. And as we look at this passage, we'll, we'll go through these three points. Um, his power to heal, his power to save, and, and the fact that there's no other power available. This, this is really the key thing in the words of Peter, that not only Christ is powerful to save and powerful to heal, but there's really this kind of power nowhere else. It's exclusive with Christ. Now, before we even begin point one, one thing to note is... The boldness of Peter, especially the boldness of Peter and John in the text is, is spoken of, but it does seem like Peter was the main one who is speaking. And as much as we know that there was a lot of boldness in Peter when he preached at Pentecost and 3,000 people um, came to the faith and, and were baptized and, and probably even more than that because that was the number of, of the men and and. Then there is this miracle of Peter and John in the sermon that Peter preaches in chapter 3 that we already looked at. And there was a lot of boldness there. But we must understand that this is perhaps the moment after the resurrection of Christ that we see a greater boldness in this man because this is a whole new dimension in the life of Peter. And, and, and it helps us to understand also the kind of boldness 
that, that we can trust God will give us as believers if, if we keep our eyes fixed upon Him, not upon the waves and the turmoil of this world, but upon the Lord Jesus. We will not sink in the water. We will have this boldness because we will trust Him and He will be the one guiding us and instructing us. Why was this a greater boldness? Because Peter is no longer a free man. He's not preaching to an audience who has a certain curiosity in what he's doing. He's preaching to people who are decidedly against his message already. It's it's a group of people who have come and they already don't like what Peter has to say. Because that's why he's captive. He's preaching not as a free man, but as a captive man. He and John have been arrested. He's preaching to his enemies. He's preaching to people who already hate him. He's preaching to people who crucified the very Savior he's preaching about. And he is so bold to tell them exactly, precisely that. This is what's so critical about verse 11. This is a stone which was set at naught of you builders. This is Old Testament prophecy that said that there would be the Messiah who would be the cornerstone, that he would be the precious stone, but he would be rejected by the builders. And the builders is the idea of the four men, those who would be in leadership in Israel. The ones who were supposed to accept him as that stone are the ones who rejected him. Now, let me bring this figure back to us. It's, some of you may not have been here when I, when I treated on this verse again, but this is the whole vocabulary of the architecture of the time. The leaders, the people who knew the technology of building, they would go to the quarries and they would evaluate the the stones that had been cut and set apart to be the cornerstones. And they evaluated them. They checked them. They saw if there were any of those veins that would probably cause a breaking. They would look at the kind of stone and see if it was a kind that was too flaky or if it was strong and could withstand the weight of the building. And then they would choose some. Some they were set at naught. Some they would say, no, this is not a stone to be used. This one is. You know, some of those big stones that they would choose not to use, they would cut them into smaller stone. And so it would no longer be a cornerstone. It would be set as if nothing. And, and this figure is what Peter is using from the prophecy that the Messiah would be this cornerstone the of the very building of the church, the very leaders who would come to evaluate, not a stone, but Jesus, they're evaluating Jesus, and they saw all kinds of cracks, and they saw it as flaky and not solid. They saw it as as a stone that should be set at naught. They rejected Jesus. They said, this will not be the Messiah. Let's put him on a tree. Let's nail him. Let's execute him. And Peter is saying... Jesus is that stone that was in that prophecy. He was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. In His resurrection, God has evaluated Him and found Him to be perfect and pure. And He is supposed to be the foundation of the church. And then He said, Neither is there salvation in any other. Try as you may, you'll never find a stone that's better than him. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. In this astonishingly bold proclamation, Peter 
is revealing this exclusivity of Christ as Savior. Well, let me begin by looking at the theme of His power to heal. Because this is the first thing that they ask. By, by what name or, or who's given you the authority? Where is the power? See verse 7. By what power or by what name have you done this? And that's his first answer. Verse 10. Be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. So Peter is saying, Jesus did it. He's not here, and yet He is. You don't see Him, but He's in us. We are the body. He's the head. And He's working. It's as if He's never gone. His work, in a way, has multiplied because now He'll do it through us, and we are 12. And those 12 would preach to others, and those thousands of others would preach to others. And, beloved, this is very real. This, this is why you and I are here, miles and miles away from Israel where this religion began, and yet we are trusting that same one. We are looking to that stone, and we are saying, no, He is not to be rejected. He is to be accepted, and He is the Savior of my life. And that's where my hope is. And it was all connected to the miracle. This is what what I want to connect. Let's look at his power to heal. See, miracles had a very specific purpose. The purpose of the miracles. They, They were not meant simply to make someone's life better. That was really not the main reason for the miracles in the Old Testament or New Testament. Of course, that was part of what happened. But what I mean is, it was not the purpose. That was not the main point. The main point was to prove a point. That was the main purpose of the miracles. Think of the miracles in the Old Testament. Um, Why was it that God was showing those signs to Pharaoh? It was to prove a point. Remember, Pharaoh had said, I don't know the Lord. And God wanted to prove a point and say, I am the Lord. And at the end of the story, Pharaoh says, he is the Lord. Miracles have a purpose that go beyond helping people. It is to save people. It's not just to make your life better. It's so that you fix your eye then upon Jesus and say, he is who he said he would be. Or He is the promised one that prophecy said would come. And, and here, miracles come alongside prophecies. And, and, and they're, they're very similar. Prophecies, again, they, they were never meant just so that people knew what would happen. That wasn't always the main point. The main point would be so that when a prophecy would be fulfilled, people would look at that prophet and say, listen to what he says. You see, the miracles had that power. You would listen to the man who had such a power. And, and, and if he said something would happen, and it did, it would also attune your ears to whatever he would say. Because that was even how you would see a true prophet from a false one. Any prophet who said anything that did not happen, he was to be considered a false prophet. Therefore, listen to him no longer. Don't, don't give him even a second chance. And so the prophecies, what's precious is that when we think of the Lord Jesus, there is an accumulated, um, there's a double power 
in the Lord Jesus in terms of miracles and prophecies because there were prophecies about the Messiah that he would do miracles. And then the Lord Jesus comes to earth and he does miracles. He, he does give eyes, sight to the blind and, and he helps the oppressed be set free. And Jesus wasn't just doing those miracles. In doing so, he was fulfilling prophecies. And in, and in all these ways, Jesus was being authenticated before the people that he is the promised Messiah. And, and Jesus himself, during his life, you'll remember in John 5, he speaks of, of the four witnesses that witness of him. And they are the Father and John the Baptist and the Word itself. And then he said, and my works. And then he said this about his works in John 10, 37. He said, if I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. But if I do, though ye believe me, not me, believe the works that ye may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. So Jesus is saying, when you, when you see me give life to the little daughter of Jairus... Well, believe then that I'm the one the Father sent. When you see me looking at that man who had a legion of demons, but all of a sudden, the man who was not even in his, in, in his he was just insane, you see him sitting, clothed in his right mind, that's a work that comes from heaven. So then believe me for the sake of this work. Jesus was showing that the miracles had this power to them. And so... Let's go to our second point, his power to save. And here we have a connection then. What Jesus is doing here through the lives of the apostles is very similar to what Jesus does when when he was here on earth. And you'll remember how there was that miracle, this very memorable miracle, where so many people were in the home, there was no room for another person to come. It would be impossible to bring another sick person before Jesus. But those four friends of the one man who was paralyzed, and he was on a, on a hammock of sorts, and they were carrying him. When they realized they couldn't go through the door, they thought, we, we need to go. Their faith was so great, they understood there was healing in no other man but Jesus. So remember, boys and girls, in that case, they, they, they went through the roof and they literally took the tiles off and, and, and holding with ropes that hammock down, they were able to lower that man really close to the, like before and, a, and an, on, over the Lord Jesus. And here he sees this man coming immediately. Of course, the, the Lord Jesus understood this, this is a person who needs me to heal him. But remember, instead of healing him, the Lord Jesus first forgave him. The text says that Jesus saw the faith of this man, saw the faith of all of them, and he said, your sins are forgiven thee. Remember that that caused a commotion? There were those thinking, who is this man who thinks he can forgive Sins only, only God can forgive sins. And, and Jesus knew there was that, that tumult in their hearts. And he says, well, what is it easier to do? Is it easier for me to say, your sins are forgiven you? Or is it easier for me to say, be healed? And then he said, so that you know that the Son of Man has power to forgive. And then he looked at the man and said, I say unto you, stand up and walk. 
What's beautiful about this is that it really is as simple as it is. Jesus was saying, I will prove that I did something in the heart of this man by doing something on the outside of this man so that all of you can see. See, none of us could testify that his sins were forgiven. That man maybe could say, I felt like I was lighter than ever in my life. Maybe he had many things to say, but no one could see that. But everyone could see him walking. And this is the same thing Jesus is doing here, but through the disciples now. This man was healed who had been sick for 40 years, lame. It is impossible for him to stand up and walk. And yet from one second to the next, in the extending of a hand, here he is. And here we're being told that it was Jesus who did it. And and as soon as he announces that Jesus did this, this is what Peter does. See, Peter is now speaking of Christ's power to save because he has power to heal. And And the healing is a proof that there is salvation. So he says in verse 12, and and this is where you see, as glorious as the healing is, Peter doesn't stay there. And it's not like now the church starts a whole healing ministry and that's where it stays, just in a very uh, horizontal kind of life. If you're sick, come to Christianity and you'll be healed. No, this is not what Peter does. He says in verse 12, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Peter is saying, yes, look at this man. See the power of his healing. And this is a proof positive that Jesus who has risen from the dead can save your souls because most of them there didn't need healing but they all needed saving grace they all needed salvation so let's talk for a minute about salvation and beloved this is where the problem really starts if it's gone through your mind Part of this sermon, we need to talk about this. We are not in the world friendly to the message in this text. It's becoming worse and worse. It's, it's not so new. There's always been times where people have thought that Christians are arrogant for believing. That the way of salvation we proclaim, that we believe from God's word, literally says it's the only way. Jesus did not say... I am one way, one truth, and one life. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. It's not that we try to be exclusive. It is that our Savior is, and He taught us to be, because that is the truth. But you know, like I do, we're in a world that is thriving in what's called pluralism. Pluralism is the idea that you can be saved with whatever truth becomes yours. And and you do not dare tell someone else that their way of religion and of obtaining what they believe is even salvation, it, it, it is so seen as rude and obnoxious and proud if you are to hint even that their way is not right. And then it becomes, of course, even worse in their thinking that you're proposing that not only your way is better, you're just saying it's the only one. So we're in a world that's becoming harsher, more and more intolerable 
They are very tolerable in a sense, but only if you are tolerable too. And if you're not tolerable, you're the one they're intolerable too. But our religion, which is Christ's religion, teaches that there is salvation in no other way. The whole problem is, this is why I said, it begins with what salvation is. Many people in the world, the majority, don't understand what we mean by salvation. We're not talking about a life made better. We're not talking about loneliness ending. As important as that may be, that's not the fullness of salvation. It's, it's not about discouragement being turned into joy. Salvation is not even a matter of just hoping that possibly we'll encounter God and ends will meet and, and there will be mercy for me because after all, I've done all I could. That's not what salvation is. Salvation is not a possibility of salvation. Beloved, think, think of the cruelty of this desire that you really can have a whole system that you live your life from, from, from zero to maybe 88 and you're just, just hoping for the best all those years. And then it might simply happen that you meet with your Creator and He says, no good. Because one more good deed and you would have been fine, but you're short by one. That's the religion of, of many um, pagan systems. It is only a possibility. It's only a hope. That's, that's not the salvation we're talking about. The salvation that God's Word offers is complete. And, and it's, it's not even when you look at things that salvation is, but then if you single just that one thing, it's not that. What I mean is this. Some people think of salvation as going to heaven, and that's all it is for them. But it is, of course, part of salvation, the hope of heaven, but it's not the only thing. An, another thing that usually is, is thought of as salvation is forgiveness of sins. And, and as wonderful as that is, it's also not the only thing. Salvation is spiritual deadness made alive. It is spiritual filth made clean. It is conscience made light. It is forgiveness truly obtained. It is righteousness received. Not just as best as you can kind of righteousness, but divine and perfect righteousness. Christ's own righteousness imputed to our account. That's what salvation we're speaking of. It is then hope of heaven in a certain way, not in a could-it-be-possible way. That's not what Christianity is promising, that you, you, you can have as best the hope of heaven as you can. No. Christianity promises that you can go to sleep every night if you have true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and be certain of heaven as if it's already in your heart. One of the Puritans spoke of assurance of salvation as heaven right now. Because before you're in heaven, heaven's already in you and you know you're going there. That's the salvation we're speaking of. We're speaking of a salvation which means communion with God. The God whom we rebelled against, the God whom we were in enmity against, is a God whom now we have access to. He is our friend. He loves us. 
and we love Him. This is the salvation we're speaking of. And, and, and it's in essence then an undoing everything that happened in the fall. So let's just remember what happened in the fall. Adam and Eve had perfect communion with God. And, and I'm going to say we, because we were in our first father and mother. They represented us. So we can theologically say we had perfect communion with God. But when the fall happened, that was destroyed. We had perfect, sinless existence. But with the fall, that was marred. We, we had perfect communion with one another. Adam and Eve were best friends. They were one. But as soon as sin came in, they pointed fingers at each other. And, and, and that, beloved, we are proofs of that continuation until today. It is hard to get along individually, and there are fights sometimes with people we love the most. There are fights from neighborhoods to neighborhoods. There are fights from from states to states, and there are fights from nations to nations. And that has been the history of the world from day one after the fall. The first son whom Eve bore killed the second. So communion between us was lost in the fall. We had perfect love to God before the fall. We had perfect communion. We desired God. We delighted in God. But after the fall, no more. Man became self-centered, envious of one another, covetous of that which he cannot have, greedy for more of what he already has, and jealous of those who have it. Men never stopped being religious, only his devotion became to self instead of God, to the material instead of the spiritual, to to the now instead of the eternal. And salvation undoes all of that. This is what we mean by salvation. When Peter says, neither is there salvation, do we need to understand why is he being so exclusive? Why it's only Jesus? Well, because we're speaking of something that is drastically, astonishingly, magnificently precious. It is what you and I need. It's not just a better life now. It is a better existence forever and ever and ever. And it's not just feeling a little better by the things that we do. It is having the certainty that before God, I have His righteousness in me and all my sins were on Christ on the cross. Not a single one of them left to be paid for because Jesus, at His last breath, when He gave up the ghost, and before that He said, it is finished, He was also meaning all the sins that I have committed, He suffered for completely on the cross. He undoes everything. And beloved, here, here it comes the reality about you and me. If you're truly born again, you will look to a brother, a sister in Christ, And you will say, I want that communion we had in the garden. I want that oneness. I don't want to be jealous of what you have. I don't want to be envious of of the Joneses. I, I, I want to love them and I want to love you. I won't steal from you. I won't lie to you. I want to pray for you. I love you. 
And that's why, beloved, John, the Apostle John, takes on this and he says, if you say you love God, but you don't love a brother, you're still in darkness. Because, see, that's what darkness was. Adam and Eve blaming each other, Cain killing Abel, Esau fleeing, Jacob fleeing because Esau wants to kill him. But when you're a Christian... That's inverted. And you love not only those who are your brothers and sisters in Christ, you have enemies out there that you say, I love them too. They need water, I'll go give it. They, they have cursed me, I will bless them. They are persecuting me, I will pray for them. You see how that's an inversion of the fall? We are saints. We are like heaven here on earth. It's a holiness that is obtained. That's what conversion is. This is a, a new birth. And this is why there's no other Savior. Only Jesus can do this. Now, many of the teachers of this world can teach you to live a better life and, and be better behaved. But what I'm talking about is impossible for man to do. You, you know it. I, it's impossible for me to improve myself to that kind of position. I can't do it. But God can. And this is our third point. No other power available. I, I want to go even deeper here in the unapologetic proclamation that Peter is saying. He is saying that no matter what religion is out there, none can do what Jesus can do. Now, this is not kept religious religions and, and the gods of this world from multiplying. And, and just as an example, the, the Romans and the Greeks, they considered 12 gods with little g who ruled from Mount Olympus the, the whole world. Um, the, the Mayans, they had 166 gods recorded. The Aztecs, they had 200 or so. And the Incas had 475 or so. It seems the longer a people existed, the longer their gods multiplied. The Egyptians and Mesopotamians, a, a much longer existing culture, they had more than 2,000 gods. And the Hindus are known, and this could be even philosophical because it's impossible to know how can you quantify this, but they are known to have over 33 million gods. And some religions like Islam has only one, but he's not the right one. See, in light of this whole global pluralism, this is the world we're in. We're, we're in a world that says, you're crazy if you think you only have one, and he is the right one. You're even allowed to have one as long as you respect the one other people have. How can we, how can we be so exclusive? Well, again, because of what salvation is and about because of who Jesus is. See, Jesus can achieve in his own, what 33 million Hindus God cannot do. He can do with his 12 apostles what those 12 gods of the Greeks and Romans cannot do. If you've read anything of mythology, all they do is fight with each other, and they're not one bit interested in the purity and sanctification of the people. That's the last thing in their repertoire of, of, of understanding is to have a pure people. That's the interest of God. And, and what has He done to make it where we are pure and holy? He sends His Son. 
And his son takes on human flesh. No other God in all of mythology ever had an interest in humanity to the point of coming here, let alone in a way so connected, so inclusive. See, we speak of Christianity as exclusive, but it is so inclusive in its love and its grace and its generosity because Jesus came to this world. He touched this earth like a servant, like a slave. And he is rubbing shoulders with sinners. It is so hard for Jesus. He says, how long will I suffer this sinful generation? Jesus was was saying, this is hard for me. A holy man among such unholy people. And as Jesus contemplates that soon at the cross he will receive the wrath of the Father, the the hatred of all the people, it is as if there is hatred now from every realm of earth. There is hatred from from the demonic forces who who are glad that he is dying because they hate him so much. There's hatred from all of the hierarchy of the Jewish religions because religion, because they're the ones who took him to the Romans. So there, there's hatred from the Roman world who, who is saying, if you're going to say you're a Caesar, you're going to have to die on the cross. And then he looks at his friends, and they're the ones who were scattered. It's like a form of hatred. They're not there to support him. And he looks to the Father. And he says, my God, my God, Why hast thou forsaken me? This is what Jesus did to be our Savior. And there is no ancient text and no modern text of any ancient God or any modern God who ever comes close to having done just that. And when Jesus dies, he is buried. He enters the realm of the dead. There are even pagan gods who were in those realms. Jesus is there. The figure is that Hades is trying to keep him. The devil will lock the door. He is dead. He is now ours, they say. But no. Come Sunday morning. This is why this day is so special. Every, every seven days, we have it again. And we come together to celebrate exactly this. He arose from the grave. Death, Hades, you know, Moat was one of the gods of the dead. They could not keep him there. He bursted out of the darkness of death with life. And what does he do with this life? He, he gives it to all who trust in him. And and it's the Father saying, you as a sin offering on that cross is accepted of me. Everyone who looks to Christ and say, Lord, I cast my sins upon you. I cannot carry. I cannot pay for it. But I will lay it at the tree. Is there mercy for me? And he says, yes, this is what I am. I am a sin offering. I came for sinners. If you feel you are well and you, and you don't need a physician, Christ did not come from you, for you. But see, if you say, I need you, I am a sinner, do I qualify? Yes, by your own confession. Because Jesus came for those who are sick, for sinners. Is this exclusive? You, you see... Beloved, it is exclusive because it is true. 
but is it, in, it is inclusive because it's full of grace. It is for anyone and everyone. Maybe you have done some study of some of these pagan religions, and seriously, it seems like you need a PhD to understand who Brahma is of the Hindu religion. It is absolutely impossible to have a right concept of who is who and what can you do to ever possibly be saved. You have to be smart. You have to be academic. You have to really read thousands and thousands of manuscript. If you're a Hindu, maybe you need to know Sanskrit. It is impossible. I tell you. I try to learn it sometimes to bring an example, and I give up. And then I think, well, this is the point. It's a religion that you, you, you have to have a degree to understand in order to be saved. No wonder in, in those lands, there's even the untouchable, the people who are, who are so low in the whole rank of their understanding. There are people who can never understand these things that we understand. And so there's salvation for the rich, but there's none for the poor. But our salvation, our Savior, He was rich and made Himself poor. From the tree, beloved, think of it. From the tree, is there anyone too low who could ever think he's too high? On the tree, we need to put ourselves in that world. It was the most despicable death. It was a place of shame. It was for people to look and say, I will never, ever dare do what that man did because I don't want this death ever close to my heart. And what did Jesus do? He despised the shame because he desired people to be saved. That's why Jesus is the only Savior. Because that's what we need. And only he did it. Beloved, it's, it's really nothing new. It's the unity of the whole Bible, isn't it? You, you look at the Old Testament, and this, this exclusivity was there. The, 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 the law is given to us. We read the law this morning, and as soon as we have it, the very first law, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Jehovah was to be in the heart of the Jewish man or woman, and boy and girl, to see, be seen as the only God. Jehovah would not share his throne with anyone. That, that one solemn declaration in Israel was in Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. In Deuteronomy 4.35, the Lord, he is God. There is none else beside him. And in other prophetic books also Isaiah 45 5 I am the Lord and there is none else there is no God beside me and in Isaiah 44 18 he puts it as a question is there a God beside me yea there is no God I know not any God God is almost ironic here saying I am God I look down believe me there is none I'm the only one and so Psalm 115.4 has this, it's like a conclusion regarding all the idolatry that we see. Psalm 15.4 and following says, Their idols are silver and gold, the works of men's hands. That's all they are. It's what we do, what we produce. These idols, they have mouths, but they speak not. They have eyes, but they see not. 
They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. They that make them are likened to them. So is everyone that trusteth in them. Beloved, turn this passage around. And we have Jesus. Jesus came as the image, the fullness of the image of God. With his eyes, he saw a man one day who was 38 years waiting as the water moved in the pool of Bethesda. He never made it because his problem was that he was lame. Remember, once a year or every so often from season to season, that would happen. And whoever made it to the water first was healed. Jesus didn't go to the person, perhaps, which was there for two, three years, four years. He went to a man who was there 38 years. He said, you want to be whole? The man said, I have no one to take me to the water when it moves. The man thought he just wants to have a little conversation about my need, and I'll be honest with him. And Jesus says, stand up and walk right now. That's the miracle of Jesus, but it started with his eyes seeing this man. Jesus had hands, and a leprous man came before the Lord. You can imagine this man was probably keeping somewhat of a distance, probably with his hand in his mouth saying, I'm unclean, but Lord, wilt thou make me clean? And Jesus didn't say, of course, yes, six, six feet apart. No, he touched him and said, I will. Be thou clean. And the impurity of that man was not able to pass on to Jesus because it was the purity of Jesus that was being passed on to that man. And Jesus had ears to hear. He somehow, with his eyes and his ear, caught the commotion of those parents who wanted their little babies blessed. And, and he heard those disciples saying, no, he has no time for you. He's here for more serious matters. And Jesus said, let the little children come, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So with hearing what was going on, he called those little children and blessed them. You see, beloved, he's not an idol. He heard, he touched, and he blessed those little children. Of all his senses, perhaps the most blessed for you and me is that he used his mouth. This is why the figures of Christ in Revelation and other places, it speaks of this one standing by the throne. And then it speaks of a sword coming forth out of the mouth. That is a figure of his preaching, of his speaking. And the Lord Jesus spoke life to all who would hear. And from his lips he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Beloved, do you realize the arrogance that it would take a soul to undo the words of this Christ that I have proclaimed today? See, the world will come to you and say, you are arrogant when you say Jesus is the only way. And we need to lovingly and honestly and sincerely explain, you need to understand, I would be the most arrogant man or woman if I were to undo what Jesus has done. He said he is. 
the only way. And I'm only imitating what he said. I'm just communicating to the world the truth about Jesus. And if you come to him, there is salvation to you too, even if you are someone who deny him right now, even if you're someone who goes against him, even if you're sinning away as it were, any hope of salvation, if you turn to him, he will save you too. See how inclusive our message is to this world. Beloved, don't be embarrassed. Don't, don't be afraid if the world will call you names and, and, and call you um, I'm proud and, and, and that you're being so exclusive. Just, just explain what salvation is, what we need, and then be very honest to say this is what Jesus did. And only He did it. And if you believe in Him, you will be saved. You and your household. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious, glorious God Almighty, we praise Thee, Lord, for sending us Thy Son, the only Savior in this world, the only name where any of us could be with any hope of salvation. And Lord, how we thank Thee that we have Christ Lord, we, we do see many people who have lived this world with, with earnestly good intentions. But Lord, help us to separate the intentions from, from the actions. Christ didn't just desire to save us. He did. He died. He took our sins. And He resurrected. And we pray, Lord, that our eyes would turn to Christ and glorify Him as our Savior. Help us to understand, Lord, that there's no salvation in our works. There's no salvation in the ceremonies that we would perform. Even in our penitence, we may repent and think often that if we cry more, then maybe we'll be saved. Help us, Lord. No, those are no gods either. But Jesus is. He's our Savior. He's our Lord. And we pray then, Lord, may our eyes turn to Him. Now and always, we ask in His name. Amen.